Turn with me in your Bibles, please. We could turn back to 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. Um, remember, that's our base text where we have been discussing the faith that we have by Him, that is by Christ. But instead of that, let's go to one of those, uh, one of those more famous passages on saving faith. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's read that, seeing that we have been involved in the study of saving and justifying faith. Let's go ahead and read from verse 4 down through verse 10. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Wilhelmus Abrockel helps us out with a, a very astute quotation. Here the reverend or as the Dutch call him, Vader Brockel. He entrusts his body, soul, and salvation to Christ. He relies upon him, allows himself to be born by Christ, leaning and resting upon him. And even if he has no peace or assurance as yet, and is tossed to and fro by fear, being confronted with strife, he nevertheless betakes himself to him. He relies upon him, exercises trust in him, and entrusts himself to him. He that believeth shall not make haste. The remnant of Israel shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? Let him Trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Well, very, uh, very uh, copious amount of quotations in that short quotation there about those verbs of motion. Staying, resting, trusting, all of those kinds of things. Let's remember what we talked about last Lord's Day just for a moment or two. We are at that third building block, that third piece of faith. We said that we don't want to think of them as successive necessarily in that sense, but as, a, but as things that are inexorably connected one to another. And although it is possible to have assent without trust, as we have said and seen, still what we want to make sure of is that when we're talking about saving and justifying faith, we have them both. And we have them both married together as a piece of one contiguous whole. Then while we break it down for our understanding in this way, we want to make sure that we're not understanding them as, okay, now I have this one, now I'm going to have that one, and now I'm going to have that one. We don't want to do it like that. We want to have faith, as we say in our language, all of a piece, all of one whole. Um, the other thing that we talked about was uh, the difference that our confession and catechisms make with regard to faith. Some of you came to me and said this was particularly helpful for you. Your pastor appreciates those encouragements. We talked about faith considered as saving and faith considered as justifying. And that while that is the same faith, that when we consider faith as justifying, we point our, our understanding of faith in a particular direction. And when we understand our, our faith as saving, we widen out that understanding of saving faith as opposed to justifying faith. They're not different faiths, but we can contemplate what is 
totally faith itself, saving faith. We can contemplate that larger venue of saving faith in a justifying manner as well. Faith can be contemplated like that. So in the larger catechism, it's contemplated as saving, sorry, justifying faith, right? The the question number 72, what is justifying faith? And so that, that able answer ends with, for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Okay. But there's more than just justification in our salvation. There's justification. There's sanctification. There's adoption. There's all kinds of other graces. And so our uh, confession of faith contemplates faith as saving, not justifying. And so it does mention justifying justification but it also mentions sanctification it mentions eternal life it mentions all other graces or many other graces that we don't consider when we're simply talking about justification and there's a distinction there in our contemplation of the one faith that saves okay i'm glad because often our parlance can be sloppy one of my mentors once taught me, if you have a sloppy locution, that is phrasing, you will also have a sloppy theology. But a precision in locution will help us precisely to understand our doctrinal uh, statements, those commitments, those biblical teachings rightly. And so part of the preacher's job is to have good locutions, right? Good locutions, so that we rightly understand such things. So last week then we began to widen out this concept of trust in that it has this termination upon Christ. It is those things, as we said last week, maybe by way of illustration, close the gap between us and Christ. Right? And we talked about receiving Christ. And John makes that very clear in John 1.14. That to receive Christ is to believe on his name. We talked about a few other of those uh, verbs of motion that the Bible presents to us. Um, uh, We believe into or unto Christ. And so there was a prepositional motion there. Our faith unites us to him. It is unto him. We spoke of receiving him, following him, walking in him, being rooted in him, coming after him. And then we began from John chapter 6 to open up this phrase, coming to him. Coming to him. And coming to him is put for faith itself. He that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, Christ says from John chapter 6. Right? That this coming to him is indeed another one of those verbal motions that draw us to union with Christ. It is coming to him. Our faith then, as it were, terminates upon him. It is not simply in propositions, and you'll remember the quotation that we read last week, where it's not just propositions. Yes, propositions are important, and we want to believe the right propositions about Christ, but it is him that we must be united to. Not simply information about him. Okay? All right, so I'd like to continue on a little bit now, uh, maybe with with one more short piece of of introduction. When we talk about our faith terminating upon Christ, that means then that, beloved, it is all kinds of faith that can truly be saving. Right? If it takes a particular, quote, quality of faith, if it takes a particular strength of faith, depth of faith, breadth of faith, in order to be saved, well then, what have we done? We have developed ourselves a system of faith in faith instead of faith in Christ. Remember the woman that was bowed over with an infirmity. Years and years. And what did she say to herself? If I can just touch the hem of his garment. She was not willing to address Christ. The Syrophoenician woman, the same sort of thing, although her humility um, um, 
she, she evinced herself as having great faith. But notice that the great faith manifested itself in a great humility. But the, but the woman that is bowed over, her faith we might, we might talk of as a very weak faith. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. Right? So she touches the hem of his garment and then slinks away. She's not about to, to talk to him. And, and yet he says, who touched me that he might encourage and expand and strengthen her faith. But notice the strength of her healing and, and faith, sorry, the strength of her salvation was not found in her faith, but in her Savior. It is a weak faith that can attach on, on Christ as saving faith. Is your faith weak, beloved? With the man that had the palsied son who fell in the fire, do you say, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief? My faith is certainly not what it ought to be. In fact, I ought to be repenting of my weak faith. But where does that faith rest? To whom does it come? Who does it receive? That's where the strength of it lies. It's in the strength of the Savior upon which even a weak faith might terminate. So, beloved, think of Christ and what He has done. All right, so we looked at John 6 last week on coming to Christ. Let's look at a little bit more on that from Matthew chapter 11. I don't believe we spent any time in Matthew 11 last week, so I want to spend a little bit of time with you here. In verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here sets out that famous invitation, come unto me. He will, he will do the same thing at the end of the Great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus will place himself, I don't know where, but in some prominent position. And he will stand before the multitude that are there. And he will raise his voice. And I can, uh, I can understand that, that, that he, is, he presents himself as Jews were wont to do with his arms held wide. And he will say... If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And so what do we hear of Christ? What do we hear of him there? That he invites folks to come unto him. This coming unto Christ, this is another one of those verbs like we studied last week of, of believing in him. It's a coming to Christ. This is faith taking hold of Jesus Christ. Not terminating in propositions, but coming to Christ. I remember we, we talked briefly about Sandemanianism. That says, well, no, it's, your, your, your faith is belief in gospel propositions. If that was so beloved, then the Bible over and again in all of these, and we're, we're going to look at copious phrasing. All over scripture, all kinds of scripture that put not propositions as the terminus, but God himself, Christ himself, as he presents himself. Come unto me, Jesus says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A coming unto Christ then, if we would put it in this concept of knowledge, Assent and trust. Notice what we said about knowledge. We said that there is no minimum and there is no maximum. 
that every one of us ought to be growing in the knowledge of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. But notice what that does. That places the emphasis on what? On the gathering up of knowledge, not on a minimum or a maximum. Right? What is the minimum? Well, what does that do? That makes for presumption. What is the maximum? The maximum, what does that do? That makes it uh, beyond our reach as if, what? That, you know, like the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, it's too high. Will someone come down from heaven and bring it to me? And Paul will say what? The word is nigh thee. It is in thy mouth. It is upon thy heart. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus Christ as Lord, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is not so minimum and not so maximum oriented. And so when Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, the only qualification that Jesus has here is that you are so sick and tired of the burden of your sins that you come to Christ. And he says, What you'll find with me when you come to me is that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not so far under the earth that no one can reach it. And not so far into heaven that no one will bring it down. No, it's here. It's before you. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Jesus will use several descriptors of faith. And this is important because we have bad conceptions of faith. When I was a wee tyke, we were in standard evangelical church of those days... This is back in ancient history, children, in the 70s. Yeah, you could count back then? Yes, we could. We actually had, you know, we had beads. <laughs> so, interestingly, at this one uh, summer camp, of course, all of the evangelical churches that we knew, we all went to summer camp so we could have our mountaintop experience with Christ and then come down and, you know, forget all we learned. <laughs> But we came to camp, and at camp we had this, this gentleman that was, that was preaching, and I'm sure he was well-meaning, just ill-informed. And he said, you know, there are a lot of you out here that are believers in Christ. But I want you to take the next step. Oh, you're saved. You don't need to worry about your eternal salvation. But if you really want to be a strong Christian, then you're going to go forward to discipleship. You're going to not become just a believer in Christ, but a disciple of Christ. Interesting. Well, a few of us raised our hands. We want it. I mean, you put it like that. We want to be disciples, right? Listen to what Jesus says here. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The word learn there is the Greek word matetevo. Matetevo is the word that we get mathematics from. Remember that back in the old days we called mathematics ciphers. Why do we call it ciphering? Because we had to write it out. We were learning a way to do, say, long division. We don't do that anymore. We have clickety, clickety, click. Boom, the answer comes up on the screen, right? But long division is, a, is something that, oh, I don't know, I, I guess a lot of children didn't like. I, used to, I loved it myself, but that's just me. But here we have Jesus saying, come unto me and be my disciple. There's no two-tiered Christianity with Christ. Faith in Christ is discipleship. Faith in Christ is learning of him. Again, notice, we're closing the gap between us and Christ with the word learning. Take my yoke upon you. What yoke? The yoke of all that I am, Jesus says. The yoke of me being your master and you being the disciple. And he speaks into a context in the first century where you would walk through the streets of Jerusalem and you might see a teacher. And that teacher would be... Would, would be obviously dressed. He would have a, uh, the kind of dress that says, I'm a rabbi. You know what the rabbi means, right? The word rabbi. Rav in Hebrew means great one. 
Ravi means my great one. Because he would be a great one to those who were walking behind him. His followers. His disciples. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The yoke of what? My gospel. My doctrine. As he will say all throughout the gospel of John. My doctrine is not mine, it's my father's. My works are not mine, they're my father's. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Be my disciple. Close the gap between you and me. Unite yourself to me as my disciple. There's no believing in Christ on the one hand and then being his disciple on the other. Believing in Christ is being his disciple and it is all coming to Christ. That's what it means. Coming to Christ, believing in Christ, being discipled by Christ. All of those things are here. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Notice, as a master, as the one who, who offers his yoke. I'm not like the yoke you've been bearing. I am meek and lowly of heart. Sin is a hard master. The way of the transgressor is hard. But having Christ as master and, and then, you know, pic- picturesquely, a train following him of those who are his disciples. They are indeed believing in Christ in that way. This is what it means to come to him. To take his yoke. To turn away from all others and again we're going to we're going to look at other words that that have to do with these same things turning and and so on but it is always to christ jesus says come unto me this uh the same kind of phrasing was used in the old testament as well wasn't it turn with me to the prophecy of isaiah In chapter 45, verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them nearer. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. The same kind of thought there. First, the... The prophet begins with come. Then he says look. In Isaiah chapter 55. Famous gospel passage. Ho everyone that thirsteth. Come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money. Come ye. Buy and eat. Yea come buy wine and milk. Without money. And without price. Coming to Christ is also one of those verbs of motion that, that speak of saving faith in Scripture. So John 6, 35 through 40, Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 through 30, um, John chapter 7, toward the end of that discourse. There are other uh, words that are similar to this. Uh, another one that we hear all of the time in Scripture is drawing near. Drawing near to the Lord. And again, drawing near. Now, let's be clear on this. There are times when the people of God as believers, they, they become cold in their faith. And so sometimes drawing near will, will point to those who have been estranged from God somehow. Then drawing near to Him by way of reformation. By way of revival. But other times drawing nearer is that same kind of understanding that we hear. Like in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. Remember our Hebrews salad? 
Let us, let us, let us. In Hebrews chapter 10, let us, verse 22, let us draw nearer with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Having that regeneration upon our hearts, that being sprinkled in the heart, what does the regenerate heart do? It draws near. It comes to Christ. It cannot but do that which the Lord has commanded there. In Hebrews chapter 7, also. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. The bringing in of a better hope, I take in that passage as being the preaching of the gospel. And it is by that preaching that we draw nigh unto God. Notice verse 22. No, it's not 22, excuse me. It's 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And so as John would write, receiving Christ and believing Christ, the same thing. So we have then, we have drawing near to Christ. And James will finish out this this verb of motion. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts. Ye double-minded, be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. Let us remember that James started out that passage by addressing the people as adulterers, and adulteresses who had friendship with the world and were at enmity with God. So coming, drawing near or nigh unto God, we also hear of going to the Lord. Coming or going. It's Sometimes it's put one way, sometimes it's put the other. Notice in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this is the parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps it should be called the parable of the jealous son. But here we are. And notice what this, what this young man does. He squanders his inheritance. He has no connection left to his father except that he is indeed his son. He has nothing to come back with. So verse 17 is where we pick up the reading. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. In the parable here, this is what faith does. Notice he does not rest in the pig pen with the knowledge of the proposition that he is his father's son. He goes to his father. There's more than a scent here. When we look at Hosea chapter 2. Is it chapter 2? I believe it's chapter 2, yes. Verse 6, therefore behold I will hedge up the way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths and she shall follow at, and she shall follow after her lovers but she shall not overtake them and she shall seek them but she shall, shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better with me than now. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Of course, it's quite a metaphor. The entire book of, the, of, of Hosea, right? His marriage to a harlot is a metaphor 
for God's people apostatizing, departing from Him and having no no, uh, visible remnants of faith. And what does the Lord do? Even for His wayward that perhaps are raised in the church and spend a time straying from the Lord, those elect of His that are known only to Him, And while we would never counsel any to stray from the Lord that you might be restored, that would be bad pastoral work. Still, notice what the Lord does. He says, I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns. Every way you turn, you'll get poked in the arm and poked in the eye. And I'll make that way, like Jesus said in Matthew 11, by way of implication, I'll make that way hard. I'll make that way so thorny and thick with briars and pricks that you will eventually say to yourself, I will go to my first husband. And the Lord does that, doesn't he? He calls people to himself because he is a merciful father. He will, like he did with the prodigal, bind up their way with thorns that they will say to themselves, I will go. I will hear that invitation of Christ and I will come. I will go. Those kinds of verbs of motion coming to the Lord. Notice that she has a knowledge that there was a time when she was indeed at least outwardly married to the Lord. And she doesn't rest in that knowledge only that she returns to Him. So these verbs of of motion coming and going how gracious and merciful the lord is in hedging up her way with thorns that she will not find her former idols and suitors instead she will make her way to the lord she will return unto him we see also a turning to the lord turning to him this is that other verb of motion that sometimes we'll, we'll speak of a people that perhaps were, were notoriously or visibly the people of God, but then they had turned away from Him, or perhaps they were never the people of God, and they turn toward Him. And so the first passage is, uh, oh, how about, oh, there's so many. How about Acts chapter 14? I have several passages in the Old Testament also from the Psalms, uh, Psalm 22 and others. But let's just look at Acts 14 here for a moment. Verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked, who never had walked, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out, saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are therein. And so sometimes the word turning is put to turn toward with the idea of believing on. Paul will say the same thing to the Thessalonians, won't he? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us 
and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of God, or the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There is a turning to God, and notice it is, a, it is, it is a turning that is also very exclusive, right? It is a turning to God from something, from idols. It says, it teaches us something about saving faith to understand it as a turning to God, right? And that is that everyone comes into this world turned towards something. Believing something, resting in something. These are what we call the idols of our age or the idols of the mind. Sometimes it's a, it's a perversion of the true God. Right? Take a scripture from here and a scripture from there and a scripture from there. Rather than that full orbed and scriptural understanding of God and created God after our own image. And the Apostle Paul will tell us that that is indeed the bent of the natural man who does not like to retain God in his knowledge, but instead fashions a God after his own image instead, right? Calvin, as we referenced earlier, will say that the human mind is a veritable forge of idols. A forge of idols. Beloved, do you recognize that in yourself apart from the Lord? And so what are we told to do in this turning? What is faith in Christ? It is turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It is to turn away from those idols of the mind or of the world that we come into this world as natural people worshiping. As fallen and carnal people we come into this world worshiping idols that are not the true God and we must learn to have faith in Christ instead, so we turn to God from idols. It is more than simply a turning to propositions, isn't it? So it is, it is described as turning to the Lord. So turning, going, coming, all of these things. We, we ask ourselves the question then, have we ourselves come to Christ? Like we asked ourselves, have we received him? And we said, didn't we last week, that, we have, that in so doing, the Bible has presented these things to us in such a way that they are more tangible to us, more helpful to us as people, rather than simply leaving it in the ephemeral, in the mystical. Now we have something, have I turned to Christ? Do I turn to Christ? Is that turning a, a sort of constant thing which, which references that turning to Christ that is indeed faith itself? When I have difficulty, who do I consult first? What is the mark of turning to Christ that I bear with me? What is the mark of coming to Him? What is the mark of receiving Him? What is the mark of following Him? Do we have these marks? When Jesus says, come unto me, have we with the psalmist said, when thou saidst, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Lord, thy face will I seek. So, coming. The next verb that I would like to speak with you about that, that speaks of true saving faith and unites us to Christ is the word abide. Abide. The Greek word meno, it means to rest, to stay, to abide, to remain. But it means more than that. Sometimes the word meno in scripture can speak of, uh, of perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, which is different from faith itself. But then other times meno will be put for that union that we have with Christ whereby we become partakers of his life. John chapter 15, please turn with me there. 
Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned." If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So, thus, in this way, shall ye be my disciples. There are a few other passages. We'll read those first, and then we'll spend some time in discussion. The same apostle writes in his epistle... 1 John chapter 2, and let's turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verse, first of all, verse 6. Let's start in verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Notice that walking and abiding are different things in this place, right? And yet notice also that walking springs up of abiding. And abiding is spoken of also as being in him. Then we skip down to verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So notice in that uh, particular passage, Oh, sorry, let's keep reading. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So notice, first of all, There is an abiding of the word, that which we have heard about Christ, and then, but we, but we move beyond that to to an abiding in the Father and the Son themselves. That it graduates from simply abiding in that word to abiding in those persons, right? And what does it mean to abide? It means to rest upon, to remain upon. It means to partake of that. That sap and strength of the vine. This is why no matter what, you may appear to be attached to the vine, but not bearing fruit. Why? Why aren't you bearing fruit? Well, it may be that you need to be pruned, cleansed, as Christ said in John 15. Or it may be that you're not a branch at all, that you're not connected, you're not abiding in Christ. And so without believing in him, abiding in him, being united to him by faith, without partaking of the, of the sap and strength of the vine, there is no fruitfulness. Therefore, those fruitless branches are taken off and burned in the fire. So it begins with hearing the word of God, that that word of God takes root in us. And then there is an abiding not only in that word, but in all three persons of the Trinity here in this passage, in the Father, in the Son, and in the Spirit. But you shall also continue, the word continue 
in verse 24 is the same Greek word that we heard abide in the beginning of that verse. That you shall abide in the Father and in the Son. And then this, you have this anointing. What is that anointing? It's the anointing of God's Spirit. And that anointing abides in you as well. And so there is an abiding, if you will, a, 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 a union by faith with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus will also call this in John 8, 31, if ye continue or abide in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So another verb of motion, abiding, not only closing the gap, but even more strongly uniting us to Christ with the Father, with the Spirit, and so on. The next uh, verb of motion is also uh, very, very important. It is resting or rolling upon Christ. Resting or rolling upon him. And we'll see this in... uh, The Song of Solomon 8. So the bride says to her husband, Oh, that thou wert as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Leaning upon her beloved. Resting, rolling, leaning upon her beloved. Notice the the great affection that the bride has. Oh, I wish you, you were my brother. It's, I'm so sad, in other words, that I met you when we, were, when we were grown. Oh, I wish it could have been that we grew up together. I wish it could have been that we knew each other from each other's birth. I wish it would have been like that. But I'll take what I can get, in other words. I will take you into the house of my mother and I will cause you to drink of my most pleasant things. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. Notice already we've started that, that, uh, that understanding of being supported by him. And then I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. That is, do nothing that would make this kind of division, distinction, or estrangement between you and your beloved. And then finally we read, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Oh, she comes up out of the wilderness. She has nothing to offer, nothing to give. She's not supporting him. She's not drawing him after her. No, he is supporting her. She is leaning upon him. This is also put for faith. The Hebrew word that we want to look at next is galal, galal. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 22 for a moment, please. Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. We'll not take the time to do all the contextual work here. We're short of time. I will tell you that this is that psalm that speaks of Christ's crucifixion. As Christ rested upon his father, so we are to rest upon Christ. 
The Hebrew word here is galal. Notice some of you will have a, a, a footnote at the beginning of verse 8. And in the margin it will say, he rolled upon. Trusted. He rolled upon his God. He trusted on his Father. He committed, right, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He rolled himself onto his Father in in confident trust and resting. In Psalm 37, verse 5, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. The word commit there, that's the Hebrew word once again, galal. Roll yourself. Roll your way. Roll your destination. Roll your, your way of, of living. Roll upon, the, roll upon the Lord. Rest upon Him. Repose upon Him. Uh, the, the Apostle, again, uh, being, a, being trained in the Hebrew, will, will say something here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, that's important for us to mention in in this regard. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, I, I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Against that day. Notice that your authorized version translators sought to translate that word as committed. Right? Like it says in Psalm 37 5, commit your way unto the Lord. What is it that Paul has committed to the Lord against that day? Himself, his vindication, his righteousness. So, beloved, this next verb in the Hebrew, it is. A rolling upon the Lord. Um, as we heard earlier from Abrakel in Isaiah 22 and Isaiah 28 in Jeremiah 6, we will hear staying upon God. Staying upon the Lord. Resting or rolling upon Him. And I want to c- come back to this next week because I, because I want to show you from, from Hebrews chapter 4 how this Resting upon the Lord is put for gospel language. So because of the hour, we're we're going to stop here. We're going to make a a brief use. and and, And then we'll bring the service to a close. As we have been saying throughout, here we say that these verbs of motion uniting us to Christ, uniting us even to the triune God, this is a part of what saving faith is. This is not an adjunct. faith. Our faith does not terminate in assenting to propositions as we have confessed in our larger catechism. Not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. It is more And the reason that we can confidently say that it is more is because all of the verbs that we're looking at have their terminus in their motion upon the person of God. Not upon certain propositions about Him, but upon the person of Him. We don't want to make the propositions the object of our faith, although that is an important part of faith. But we want also to conglomerate all of those things, whatever it is that we know, without a minimum and without a maximum. So that the weakest in faith, with with the fewest amount of propositions, can rest upon Christ. And the greatest and most learned among us, with with an innumerable amount of propositions pertaining to Christ, can do what? Rest upon Christ. That from the least of us to the greatest of us, That we're not depending on the strength, depth, or breadth 
of our faith, but upon its object. Jesus, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Come to me, Jesus will say. Some of the other things that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, um, it is called by Christ himself. Not only this concept of resting and rolling upon him, reposing on him, but eating and drinking. Jesus will call eating and drinking faith. Then Hosea will say in Hosea chapter 2, And thou shalt know the Lord. And that in the context of marital intimacy, that is also spoken of as faith in the Lord. Beloved, these motions, these movements, these verbs, all given to us in scripture to fill up that concept of faith then. What do they do? They... They show us, first of all, the impossibility of faith ever rising up out of our own breast. It is the gift of God. We can assent to propositions. We can give our mental assent to things and yet hold ourselves aloof from the actual truth of them. That's not saving faith. It is to hear all that Jesus Christ is and done, and then by faith to unite ourselves to him, to be joined to him, to rest in him, to roll upon him, to come to him, to turn from all others to him. These things are set forth in scripture so that we might have something perhaps just a bit more tangible, when we examine our own hearts, whether we be, quote, in the faith, whether or not we are in Christ. Let us remind ourselves with one last thing, that if you rest in Christ, if you roll upon Christ, if you are united to him, if you have come to him, if you have turned to him, if you have gone to him, if you've run to him, if, as the old divines say, you have flown to Christ, You must remember that you didn't do that on your own. You didn't bring that to the table yourself. The natural man has not the fortitude, the ability, the will. No, the natural man is inimical to these things, a hater of them. And so, beloved, these extra descriptions of of faith that the Bible gives to us are given as aids to us. That we might be able to ask ourselves, have I come to Christ? Have I fled to him? Have I gone to him? Have I rested upon him? Have I rolled myself upon Christ? Am I leaning on him coming out of the wilderness? Having nothing but briars and the, and the smell of, of the... Uh, of the ants, of, of, of the plants and animals in the wilderness upon me with nothing in me but my ruddy self. Have I come leaning upon my beloved? This is what we ought to do when we come to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Oh, it is not a, the strength of our faith, beloved, it is the strength of our Savior. It is not the amount of propositions we know. It's who it is that we're united to. In the greatness or in the littleness of them. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for what we have thus far seen in our study. We thank Thee, Lord, that Thou hast copiously poured forth from the scripture these connections and descriptions of what faith is. O Lord, we pray that we would not satisfy ourselves with things that are other than true saving faith. That we would turn away from satisfaction with devil faith, with temporary faith, with Miracle faith, as the older divines called it. That we would turn away with all things that are not 
saving faith and that we would indeed come to Jesus Christ and him crucified. O Lord, help us to put away all others and to turn unto Christ from idols, from the idols of our hearts. And forgive us, Lord, having come to Christ for those backward glances that we offer them even now, that we should be a people more and more with Christ fully in our gaze as the one to whom we have turned, the one upon whom we lean. O Lord, help us to leave the wilderness and to lean upon our beloved. And deliver us, Lord, we pray, from those those things that might draw us away from him. We thank thee, Father, for the clarity of thy word. And we pray that thou wouldst grant to all of us here and beyond that true saving faith. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.